Carly Farina, former chief exec of HP, once said, From the time I arrived until after I left HP, I was routinely referred to as either a bimbo or a bitch. Too soft or too hard, and presumptuous besides. Well, today we are exploring this notion of the double bind for female executives. The need to be both tough and nice as we navigate the tensions between our gender and our executive role expectations. Hi, this is Penny DeVolk. Welcome to Grit in the Oyster, a conversation about how we navigate our careers, our organizations, our lives as women leaders. Exploring its challenges, learning from others, sharing best practice, an opportunity to step out of the fray for a bit, to help you tune out some of the noise and tune into being the best leader you can be. Hello and welcome. I'm delighted to be speaking today to Professor Ronit Kark. Ronit is Associate Professor of Leadership and Psychology at Bar-Ilan University, Israel. She's a Distinguished Research Professor at the Business School at Exeter University and an Affiliated Scholar at the Centre for Gender and Organisations at Simmons College in Boston. She has published extensively on the gendered norms of leadership and as an organizational psychologist even more broadly. She received the AOM Award for her scholarly contributions to advancing women in leadership. Um, I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to you, Ronit. Thank you very much, Penny. I'm delighted to speak to you. Um, I'm wondering if we could just uh, kick off with the foundational work around that you've done with Wei Jing and Alison Meister and others, where you've explored how female leaders face this need to be warm and nice, because that is what society traditionally expects from women, um, whereas society also traditionally expects leadership attributes to be about being competent and tough, more masculine. And yet, in our minds, these qualities can often be seen as opposites, creating this catch-22, or what's considered the double bind for women leaders, where what stereotypically it means to be a woman and what it takes to lead are at odds, and it can feel very much at odds for individuals. How, how do we know this is really happening, and is it still happening? Right, so I think this is a great question, because to many of us it might sound absurd, and we might think that this is not really the case now in the time that we're at, but actually a lot of uh, laboratory findings uh, from Harvard, from Northwestern, work of Alice Igley, and Carly that have done a lot of work on this topic actually show that still today we expect managers to be having masculine traits and we sort of see the prototypical leader as having traits that are more similar to the ways we perceive masculine traits, whereas we perceive feminine traits as not that related to leadership. This is both for men and women, Mm. although it's starting to somewhat optimistically changed for women. So some of the women are starting not to link these traits anymore. But in lab studies, for example, there are findings showing that when women show authority, but they're not smiling, they're only authoritative, then they're actually going to get lower rankings on their effectiveness and on their leadership. But when they're showing authority and smiling at the same time, they're going to get higher rankings, Mm -hmm. which shows that Maybe unconsciously, we all expect women to be nice and to be strong at the same time. And if they only come by as strong or dominant or assertive or opinionated, then we're going to see this possibly in a negative way. 
is maybe bitchy or maybe too hard. Um, and when women don't temper this with other softer attributes that are perceived as feminine, then they're actually going to get backlash for this. And this is quite unfortunate. Um, I, when I talk to women in the practice, I tell them that I don't want to tell them to be at the same time mm -hmm. strong and nice because this would actually replicate what is happening now. Mm. But on the other hand, they should practically know that if they're going to be strong and are not going to be at the same time nice, they might pay a price for it. So yeah. the only way to change it is to change it collectively. But individually, we know that you know, women do have to pass these two different tests in order to be perceived as successful, whereas men can only be strong and dominant, and that will be fine. They don't have to demonstrate also the communal and the softer, stereotypically type of feminine behaviors. But if they do, many times they actually get sort of extra um, appreciation for this. Okay, so men will get enhanced uh, for being nice and authoritative, but women will be penalized if they're not. Exactly. There's this one amazing study that I um, read in a few years ago when we did our work in organizational citizenship behavior on how much men and women mm -hmm. need to contribute to the organization, extra role behavior that is not what expected of your work. And there was this psychology lab study on helping behavior and what it showed was that when women were asked to help or were not asked to help, and they either agreed or disagreed, women that agreed to help and women that were not asked to help gained the same type of um, appreciation, whereas mm. women that did not agree to help uh, got penalized for it. Whereas mm. men, when they agreed to help or when, so when men did did not agree to help or were not asked, that was like the norm and that was fine. When they had agreed to help, they got extra ratings for agreeing to help. That's really interesting. So we, we're still, unfortunately, in this type of bind, which I think unconsciously we all contribute to, both men and women and managers. And it's not something that, you know, is done by, you know, some other external... Mm men figures in society, but it's a lot of things that we're all, we all have in our biased thinking and the ways we were brought up, the advertisements we see, our surrounding, that makes us all grow up in a somewhat biased way. And yeah. unless we're very much aware of this, we're going to replicate these biases. Yes. And you talk about the these sort of four paradoxes for women leaders inherent in this social programming, um, you know, demanding yet caring, needing to be authoritative yet participative, advocating for yourself but serving others, keeping your distance but being approachable. Can you expand on these four paradoxes? So as I said before, I don't think women should be held up to this double standard. Mm. But we were interested in the more practical question of what did women that got ahead and became senior managers in organizations and were successful, what were they doing in order to be successful? We were more asking not what should be in the world, but how is the world really 
working like today and which women are able to, to succeed in today's norms. And what we found was that a lot of these women were talking in their in-depth interviews about these sort of tensions that they held by doing this duality. So to start us more generally off, I will say that we're talking about either having a dilemma mindset mm -hmm. or a paradox mindset. So a dilemma mindset means that a person would have to choose between being soft or being dominant, or between being a self serving the self or serving others. Whereas a paradox mindset is a mindset in which people think that they could actually manage both of them in different ways. And what we and they don't have to choose between them, they can do either or at the same time or in parallel. Mm -hmm. And so out of these interviews, what came out was that these were the four major paradoxes, and I'm sure there's many more, but these were the four that we've captured that women deal with in their everyday life. We didn't actually ask them about paradoxes, but this is what came out. So, for example, if a woman is demanding and she wants to be assertive and to tell her employees what, you know, what's expected of them and what type of work uh, she needs them to do, then she would also have to show that she's very caring and that she, they're very important to her. And she could do this in the same statement that she would convey, like say, okay, people, this is what we need to do. You know, I care about your time and I care about what's happening to you. And I know well what's happening, you know, in your work-life balance. And we'll, you know, we'll go on, we'll give some extra time next week, whatever. But now I need you to be doing this. Or she could, you know, be demanding at one time and be caring at a different time right. or build a care relationship and be demanding. So there's many ways to show this, but she does have to be perceived by her employees, both men and women, as a manager that's both demanding and caring. Because if she's perceived as only caring, then she might not be perceived as leader-like, as managerial-like. Uh -huh. If she would be perceived too demanding, then people would just dislike her and wouldn't want to work with her. Mm -hmm. You know, I interviewed in the Israeli uh, bank system many, um, many branches, parallel branches that were either managed by men or women. And women uh, a lot of times said to me, oh, when I heard a woman manager is coming to manage me, I thought it's going to be hell because it's terrible when women manage women, it's really terrible, right, yeah. and that they never understand you, or they know too much, and then, you know, they expect you to be like them, because they have kids, and, you know, they're still doing everything, and then a lot of them said to me, but when we had this woman manager come, I totally changed my mind, because I'm working very well with her, I see she really understands me, but, you know, their stereotype before the uh, women managers stepped in was that, you know, they might be over demanding and that won't work at all, mostly towards other women that, yeah. you know, would expect her to be more caring and understanding of their own personal daily struggles. So, so we found the demanding versus caring as I um, elaborated a bit. We also found that women um, had to be on the one hand, if they wanted to make the decisions themselves, they had to show that they're authoritative, that they can make their decisions. Yeah. They had to um, show they're doing it in a participative way. 
And, you know, we could say that women on the whole maybe are more participative or have been socialized to be participative or, you know, are more nurturing in terms of their, you know, DNA is mothering Mm -hmm. or in terms of upbringing. Or what I tend to think is that, you know, they're expected to be more participative. So if they are not participative, then they won't get ahead. So we won't get to interview them as head managers, because if a woman would say, this is what I decided, just do it, Mm -hmm. she might find herself having resistance from male, uh, male employees that she's managing, mostly in a masculine environment. She might have resistance from other women saying, you know, why is she demanding us? You know, Mm -hmm. why is she being a creative? Because we know also from other studies that Women in in the lab that um, show that they want to lead also have to show that their concern is the concern of others and the group. And they don't want to lead just for themselves. Whereas men don't have to pass this test. It's legitimate for us to think that they want to lead and it's fine. And we don't hold them accountable if they're, you know, participative or if they're taking into account um, the team goals, other people's goals, because it's the norm has been for many years that men lead. So we don't see it as something that we have to, you know, investigate deeper to understand their motives. Right. Mm-hmm. When women to lead, it's like, okay, what do they want? Why are they seeking power? What is this thing of women in power? So a lot of them, if you listen well to women, a lot of them talk in we. And they don't talk in I. Mm-hmm. For example, um, our unit has accomplished these great outcomes in the last week or last month, or we have done so and so. Whereas you will find men many times talking about I. Mm-hmm. And I actually don't think that men are more egocentrical than women. That's at least my take on it. But I just think that a woman that will talk I. Uh, will be hold, held accountable for this. Yeah, and potentially penalized, yeah. Right, so I think either the ones who get ahead are the ones that think in a more communal way mm-hmm. or have learned politically to behave this way because talking about the prior, so some data that feeds into my hypothesis that this is not DNA or this is not uh, just upbringing is the fact that if we put men in the lab with less power, Mm. we ask them to be demanding or to lead, they also have to smile. Okay. If we have men of color or if we have men that for some reasons we manipulated their power, we will see that they might also be taking on some of these, you know, less, some of these behaviors that women need to demonstrate. Okay. So these, this sort of paradox mindset as opposed to a dilemma mindset that you have just expanded on, um, sort of at the heart of it is, and many women will say, well, okay, our social programming is one thing, but it's simply not fair. Why should I have to learn to navigate this minefield when men don't? Right. So first of all, I agree. I think it's not fair. I think the world is not fair. I think we all have biases and stereotypes. And if we see uh, people of color or if we're in a certain country and the people that are now taking the lead are immigrants or from a different social class, we're probably going to have 
different types of thoughts and going to hold them accountable to a different standard. And uh, I think it's not fair. And I think it's something that needs to be changed. Um, and I believe in systemic change. Mm-hmm. So organizations need to change. See, male CEOs and managers need to change. Employees need to change. Men and women need to change. I mean, it's not something that somebody on their own can change. And I do think that over the years, it is somewhat changing. I mean, from, let's say, over 100 years that women were not able to vote or were not able to hold on to lands or were not able to study some prestigious um, type of universities or professions. You know, the world is changing gender wise, Mm -hmm. but I don't think we have to be to sit, you know, and do sit in the couch and lay back because it won't change without an effort. Um, but I do think that over time, these are things that we can change. What I think, what is actually interesting in this, and maybe even more paradoxical, is that paradoxical thinking is now the high hit yeah. um, leadership research. So most of the leaders that are successful are ones that are able to have a paradoxical mindset and to lead their organizations in a paradoxical way because these are because organizations are dealing with so many different tensions and so many different changes in our world an organization for example needs to keep on to safety and regulations and on the other hand be very risk taking and creative yeah. so this is a paradox and managers that are not able to hold on to this type of paradox are likely to be less effective. And there's quite a lot of work, my work and other great work out there that show that have been published this last 10 years that have shown that a paradoxical mindset is actually something very uh, useful for management. Mm, and very important to understand. So, I, you know, you, you were saying that systemically things need to change. But meanwhile, on an individual practical basis, to throw these paradoxes into relief, and as you have in your work, given some sort of practical strategies for how successful women take that paradox mindset and navigate that for themselves can be a very powerful muscle for women leaders to build. Right, exactly. And and I think the fact that women are held up to this paradoxical criteria actually feeds into their ability to become, if they don't, you know, a lot of times we know that women just leave on the way and leak through the pipeline. Mm-hmm. But if they don't, and if they're able to actually develop this muscle, then they're actually going to be very, very good managers. And there's many other findings that show that when you look, for example, at meta-analysis of transformational leadership, which is a very highly perceived leadership style, very developmental, visionary, Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, there's been shown to be very strongly linked to different types of positive organizational outcomes, Women are faring better on this than men. And I think one of the reasons is that not because they're genetically better, but I think because they're held up to a higher standard and they need to better develop these skills. So when we have these studies that compare men and women that that were able to get to the same position, then a lot of times the women had to be so much better or work so much harder at it that at the end of the day, they bring in very strong skills to their to the table. Okay, 
Yeah. A mediocre woman manager or even a weak woman manager would have the same options as a mediocre or weak man manager. Mm. But so that's like, that would be really when we would have equality. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some average women. Right. Exactly. Because a lot of the male managers are not that strong and we don't question their ability to lead. Whereas women who are not strong are many times not likely to be able to get ahead. Yeah. So, you, you know, when we talk about some of the emerging models of leadership, transformational, inclusive, participative, collegiate, and I know, you know, we don't want to be just swapping one stereotype for another, but do you feel that they may imbue female leadership traits that are important today and therefore women might, in fact, have an advantage? Um, I think that a lot of the leadership models through the years have moved to leadership models that would be stereotypically perceived more feminine, um, I also write about and have studies showing that intimacy and forming very, very strong relational bonds in the workplace mm. between leaders and their followers for men and women is a very, very strong way to encourage employees to contribute to the organization, to become creative. So I do think if we change the language of leadership and our expectations of leadership, uh, things might work out better for women, but on the other hand, as long as we don't change the stereotypes, so for example, we have a paper that we've written on the female advantage, mm -hmm. so we find that employees prefer actually the more feminine um, type of behaviors of really listening to them and being close and being caring but because women are expected to do this, when they do this, they don't get highly rated yeah. on this. Yeah, it's an it's an expectation. Mm. So, and when men are because men are not expected to do this, when they do this, they get highly rated. Mm. So, although these behaviors are perceived as feminine behaviors and could actually give women an advantage, a lot of times they're not. When I ask their employees or when we um, have surveys in organizations. If she's a manager, she might not be perceived as caring as her male counterpart. For the same behavior. Mm. Yeah, although she might be more caring than him, but still she's not perceived because for a woman, she's not, or like if, uh, I'll give you from a different field. So if a mother comes every day at six o'clock and, you know, plays with her child for an hour and gives them dinner, she might not be perceived as a very good mother coming in home at six o'clock or seven o'clock. If a dad does this every day, mm -hmm. he will be perceived as a super dad and everybody will admire him for being such a committed dad. So women and men also in management are held to different standards. And even though the narrative of leadership and the practice of leadership might be changing, it's still many times not giving women the full advantage we would expect it to give women. So I do think that in order to have an advantage or at least have equality, there needs to be a much bigger strategic and systemic change that organizations go through. Right. Yep. And I think it was it was very interesting what you were talking about previously um, about sort of good citizenship behavior on it, because we've talked about the double bind. I'm wondering if we can explore a little more some of the work you've done on this double shift for women leaders, and I'm not talking just about the second shift at home, but this good citizenship behavior that's expected in organization and what this might mean for women leaders. 
Are there gendered expectations of good citizenship? Well, first of all, there are many expectations of good citizenship today and of people putting in more and more of their time towards the organization that's not paid time. So there's also a lot of publications, for example, in the United States that people are working for free many, many days a year because they're not taking their vacation days or the hours that they're they're working many hours beyond what they're expected to work. Um, and the thing with women and extra work is that women a lot of times are, well, they're expected, not by contract, but when women do various organizational work that's related, for example, to taking care of a nurturing environment, of structuring an environment that people can grow in, um, or investing or helping people that have been away, or investing a lot of these mm. things that are extra work, as I said before, we're likely many times not to see it because we think, well, okay, she's helping just because she's a nice person. She's helping just because, you know, she's a woman and we expect her to help. We don't see it many times as over contribution to the organization. So a lot of times also when women are asked to do extra work for the organizations, for example, in academia, I tell you a lot of administrative roles. Um, when they're on an academic uh, career of lecturers or professors, if they say no, they might be perceived negatively. Yeah. Whereas men many times say no, and also a lot of times the type of behaviors that the men do, which can be like political help to the organization or more sort of heroic acts that are perceived by audience, sometimes get rated much higher. I'll give you an example from a different field. Yeah. Uh, example, on there, there was works on courage and w on what type of courage people get, um, get prizes. And the way people define courage is, uh, or these prizes define courage, is mostly when you do something towards people that you don't know and there's an audience, like you save somebody from the river. Okay, so that's like courage. Yeah. But when you um, when you give a kidney to a family member, that's not perceived as courage. Now, many more women provide their organs to their family members, but that is not perceived as courage because oh, you know, it's just part of the family. It's what you do. Okay. So yeah. a lot of the ways. We define like extra work, that we define courage, that we define political action are very stereotypical. And when women also try to walk in and do the political acts or do the good sportsmanship or do a lot of the things that the men are doing, then they sometimes might even get backlash because, you know, why are you speaking up like this for the organization or... You know, why are you staying so late at work? You have smaller kids at home. So, you know, it's it's quite complex for women to still walk the line mm. to show that they're investing extra work and to also get credit for this. I mean, not just to do the extra work, but to be able to get the credit because if nobody saw that they're doing extra work or if everybody sort of unconsciously expected them to do this extra work, they're not likely to be seen as like somebody that should be promoted for this. Yeah, 
Okay, that's that's interesting because you know, you're talking about this theme of the communal qualities of women and the agentic qualities of men. So, you know, are they direct, confident, forthright, controlling, assertive? So these gender stereotypes, I guess, will only disadvantage women leaders if we all continue to believe that leaders are endowed with agentic qualities such as ambition, self-sufficiency and dominance. Um, and we talked a little bit about an emerging sort of models of leadership. Do you see, do you see a shift? around what we see leaders needing to look like for us to have confidence in their competence? Right. So I'll, I'll give a few answers. First, I'll say something also about the extra role behavior and about language. Yeah. Part of this also relates to the language that we use and the way we think about these things. Because if we call organizational citizenship behavior the good soldier syndrome. So we're thinking in a framework of seeing a soldier. We're not thinking of the good nurse syndrome, for example. No. If we think about contributing to the organization as good sportsmanship, then we're going to think more in masculine terms. Yeah. If in Hebrew, saying my husband, the word in Hebrew is my owner. And women, this is the word everybody uses, apart from a few women that have changed their specific terminology, yeah. saying like my spouse, but this is the Hebrew word, my owner. No, nobody thinks about it. He says my wife and she says my owner. Yeah, yeah. Or when women get to their 50s, to their menopause, in Hebrew at least, the word for this is the age of sort of being wasted. The age of wasted, right. Your purpose is done. Yeah, so if, but nobody ever hears this because mm. this is just part of the way our terminology. Of course. So if we speak this way, if we don't have words for certain things that we experience, like in Hebrew, there's a feminine term and a masculine term. And just recently, a few years ago, they put a feminine term for the word prime minister for the first time because there were three different women heading parties and competing for the prime minister post. Of course, Eventually, they didn't get it, but they did, um, the head of the language authority in Israel, they did put a word for this. Now, at that time, my younger daughter was about 10, Yeah. even younger, maybe she was eight, and she was walking around with some of my clothing from my cupboard with a friend of her, and they were sort of dressing up like very senior women. And I asked them, like, oh, what are you two playing at? So her friend said, I'm a lead attorney in an attorney's office. And my younger daughter, she said, I'm a prime minister. And she used <laughs> the feminine term. Yeah. Now, my older daughter was never playing a prime minister because she never had the word for it. Or maybe she, they don't have the role model for it or they don't have the picture in mind for it or the language for it, whereas once we have these, things can start changing. So I think the new models are, as you asked, I mean, they go in different ways, because on the one hand, we have, you know, quite a lot of new women role models who are stepping into positions in politics yeah. and CEOs around the world. We have women like Cheryl Zandberg who are speaking out for these causes and many, many other women. We have a lot of amazing advertisements that have started being out there for capitalistic reasons of selling 
that portray a totally different mm, image. Through their consumer pressure. Mm. Yes, run like a girl and like uh, the... Um, and like the emoji and like Gillette and all these new types of uh, advertisements trying to, and the Nike and the Adidas yeah. and REI trying to move forward a different image. On the other hand, we have, we have um, politicians like Trump, mm. you know, are very masculine and talking a very hostile way towards women. So, if you ask me, I think we still we're still in a time that we have a lot of different types of voices on this, and we are in a time of change. I think the Me Too uh, process, and I can also say specifically that more and more organizations are coming up to me and asking for consultancy and for advice on this topic of having a gender strategy doing gender mainstreaming, yep. change the way they look at women and that they, I have the Israeli police talking to me, the Israeli military, the intelligence, right. yep. a lot of high-tech startup firms, big consumer firms that are coming and asking to build a gender strategy, to do gender mainstreaming, um, to have more knowledge on these topics, to know more about stereotypes. So I do think there is a shift. I think the legislation is very developed and I think education is also moving forward yeah. and I think so a lot of organizations are which didn't used to happen like 10 years ago are willing to put in a lot of money to invest in changing their gender strategy which tells me that if they're willing to pay money for this. Yeah, things are changing. Mm. I'll just give you one interesting example based on the discussion that we just had now in a very, very large global Israeli firm, we did a few initiatives to implement the things that we found in the studies. So for example, one of the things we did was um, that we, before managers gave evaluation to their employees, we sent them a very, very nice graphically designed and very short um, page with like the six major stereotypes uh, and biases we have on women when we come to evaluate them. Yeah. One of them was, you should know that we expect women to smile and be authoritative at the same time. And if they don't do this, we devalue them. Okay. So this was, for example, one of the points yeah. and we had all managers read all these biases before they rate the yearly evaluation of their employees. And in that way, we tried to temper the biases. Or for example, I'm working with a group of four middle management men that call themselves Men for Gender Balance mm -hmm. in their organization. And they, we had put together a list of practices that we advise everybody in the organization to apply and mostly managers. For example, one advice there is know that there's mentorupting, be aware of it and stop it when you see it. And mentorupting is a phenomenon that's been found that when men and women are together in a work meeting, the men interrupt the words of the women and, and make them talk shorter sentences, as well as women don't take credit for their own ideas or don't get credit for their own ideas. Mm -hmm. So we wrote note because although people usually think women talk more than men, yeah. but when we test this and, you know, and we really test the time that men and women talk 
in committees and in business meetings, the women talk less and the men get in more into the words of the women than the women into the words of men. So we're telling people in the organization, know that this is actually happening mm-hmm. and see it and think about it. Don't do it yourself. And when other men are doing this, you know, be aware of it. Or another point there is um, Mazal Tov Daddy. Congratulations, Daddy. So if it, you know that some dad in your group that you're managing or that you're an employee and had a baby, congratulate him and actually encourage him to leave early. Mm-hmm. And when he's early, say, oh, that's great. You're going to be with your daughter or your son and you should do this instead of saying, oh, you're just working half a day today. Mm-hmm. So we're putting into power these practices um, as well as building much wider sort of organizational practices that are weaved in all the way from selection uh, of how you select your employees and all the way up to what are the type of images that are on the walls of the organization. So when you walk in to the military, to the Navy, to the um, senior officer in the police, they don't even notice that, you know, the whole wall is pictures of men. Mm were either the prior commanders or just some other men. And I'm saying to them, did you notice that there's all these pictures of men on the walls? And when a young woman walks into a meeting and she sees all these pictures, she's not likely to imagine herself in this role. Yes. So if you have women that are leaving, that are very talented, because a lot of these organizations are now facing the problem that very talented women that became officers or that became managers are actually leaving before they are, you know, fully give back to the organization all the talents and development that they've acquired. And I'm saying, listen, if a younger woman that just became a soldier, she walks in here and she walks this corridor and sees all these pictures, is she likely to think that she's going Mm. to stay? Just think even about what we put on the walls, what Google has changed their Google Doodle, if you know what that is, like the icons mm-hmm. that come on the Google. It used to be only men, so Einstein and Newton and politicians and Martin Luther King. And when people critique them, they say, there's no women we can put there. Yeah. But if you look today, they changed it. There's lots of women, there's women of color, there's men of color, there's different global images that they put there that are not just the masculine scientists, uh, politicians, managers. So, I mean, there's many, many ways that I think that we can change. Change that shift. And you're seeing change uh, happen. And I guess the benefit is as well is not just having, you know, women who feel they are trapped in, in, but, but, being able to liberate men from having to be trapped in masculine models of leadership and what a breadwinner role needs to look like when we know, you know, many men would much prefer to um, to be doing more caring and uh, so unlocking those gender stereotypes and leadership stereotypes we have for both sexes. Exactly. And I think, at least for me, one of the strongest changes now that are happening globally is men being able to step in more on these topics. Mm -hmm. So there's the Australian Male Champions of Change, and there's uh, the UN campaign of He for She, 
And there's uh, a lot of organizations in Israel in which we've started working with the men that are more interested, the commanders, that are more interested in understanding this topic and knowing more how they can contribute to changing these things because they understand um, that they're not benefiting from it a lot of times. They understand that their wives and daughters are not benefiting. Mm-hmm. And their organizations many times are actually not benefiting from the current uh, situation. So I think this is the optimistic part for me is that I do think that women have been under a lot of pressure to do it all and to change these last decades. Yep. Whereas I don't think men have changed a lot. And now I think more and more men are starting to understand this. We're still way apart. I don't know if you follow the backlash on the Gillette advertisement. Yes, I did. Showed, mm-hmm. And then men were really sort of boycotting Gillette. Mm-hmm. But and women were very, very pro this advertisement. And I also don't think that 10 years ago Gillette would have, would have thought even of, thought of it. Yeah, Things are changing. And I think the strongest key today is to have men as allies and to have them as part of this conversation. Yeah. I don't think it's a woman's conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And the I guess finally run it, the the theme in a lot of the work I do with women leaders is this challenge around their congruence with who they are and the work they do because they deal with these paradoxes, they get a lot of noise and interference with what they need to look like and how they are judged and valued as leaders. What advice would you have for them? The best things that have been seen for women, first of all, I believe in knowledge is power. So I think that women that know more about gender are more equipped because they don't think it's personal. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's devastating to know this knowledge, but if you don't know it, you think you haven't gone ahead because you're not talented enough yeah. or you haven't invested mm-hmm. enough or people don't like you personally. When you know this is a phenomenon, it's not something personal that you bring in. It's something that many, many women experience then it becomes a power because then you understand it's something systemic that you have to work with. So this is the first thing, gain knowledge. The second thing is have a support group, have a group of women and men you can talk to about these topics, you can share your experiences with, you can get feedback from them about, you know, the fact that you're not alone on this because we know that once women start talking to each other, mm-hmm. they actually find out that many other women are experiencing the same and like the whole Me Too movement, but many other much more subtle things, you know, that women experience, they find out that many other women actually experience the same. And when you're in such a support group that when you say, I want to run for promotion and everybody around me is saying, how will you do it? And how will you manage mm-hmm. it? And have this group that's saying, of course you can do it. You're so good. Then, you know, she will have more power to apply for that role. So these are like the major. The third thing is I still think that women need to demonstrate very good skills at their work. So I do think women need to come with a lot of specialty. It's not something that I advocate, but I think women need to know well and to have a lot of knowledge and that makes them more secure to come into the workplace. Mm-hmm. But I think that women should find ways to become more secure by having sometimes limited knowledge on the topic. Because, for example, I can say something that worked out for me, also including this interview. 
I talked to a lot of women that work in communication and I used, and they said that, you know, I asked them, why don't you interview women for your shows on TV, mm-hmm. for the newspapers? And they said, listen, every time we call women to interview, they say, you know, I don't specialize in this. I'm not the pro in this. I have yoga now. You know, they don't take yeah. the stage. And when I, so I said to myself, okay, now I'm going to, so, and, and I could hear myself in that. Because whenever people ask me to talk about a specific topic, I might say, well, I'm not this, you know, the person number one in this in Israel, but who is number one? Mm-hmm. Some of the topics are topics that nobody really has. And then many times I would say to them when they call, yes, I'll interview. Tell me what the topic is. Give me a few hours. Mm-hmm. I'll prepare. Mm-hmm. And when I started thinking about it later on, I saw that I had a lot of knowledge on it. But when I just got the first phone call, I would usually think, oh, what can I say about this? So I'm saying to women, you know, take on challenges and take more risks. I think the world is more safer now for women to take more risks mm-hmm. than we took. And maybe my fourth would be to have a whole network of mentors and to have a whole network of role models. that are people that, you know, have either made it or colleagues that you see that you appreciate what they're doing and be able to, to get a lot of sponsorship and mentorship from other people and seek out for it, to be quite active about it. Yeah. There's some of Cheryl Zandberg's recommendations in uh, Lean In that I like, for example, I think we are held to a higher standard and sometimes we really expect ourselves to be perfect and she says done is better than perfect yeah. she also recommends getting married well to somebody who will share with you and that's for example something I don't think always women can control mm-hmm. you might get married to someone who is sharing at a certain stage and then he might change so I don't think we always have a control on you know who the other people are and who we get married to and the organization a lot of times says to me we have to we can We cannot affect the husbands of these we should affect the husbands of these women to allow them to be more time at work and I say no you don't have any control over the husbands of the women that are employed in your organization but you do have control over the men that are employed in your organizations that are married to other women exactly yeah of the men in your organization to share more of the work with their women and to go home earlier and And to stay more at home if they have younger kids, and that way you can contribute to the wider society and don't change the husbands of, of the, the women you employ. <laughs> yeah, Ron, that is fantastic advice. So knowledge is power, great network, you'll find your tribe, take the stage, and be very purposeful about your network of role models and mentors. It's just been such a pleasure speaking with you today, Ronit. I really appreciate your taking the time, your insight yeah. and wisdom, deep research, really good data, but also a very practical approach to how women can manage these paradoxes and, as excitingly, how this is a skill that will hold women leaders in good stead as we move into uh, a century where paradox is the golden thread running through most organizational success. Uh, Ronit, thank you again so much for being with us. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, a very big thank you to Professor Ronit Kark. Thank you very, very much. 
Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. If you're enjoying our conversations, do subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes. And stay in touch. Penny at pennydevolk.com.